Good morning, and thanks for joining me for another Antinomian Audiobooks podcast. This morning, I will be reading from The Yoga of Power, Tantra, Shakti, and the Secret Way by Julius Evola. Um, I'm sitting in the yoga shala, so I hope the echo doesn't bother you. Here we go. Chapter 6. Assumptions behind practice and the means employed. The experience of the subtle body, the bodily postures. The overall Hindu view concerning the practice of authentic yoga may be summarized with these words. Very few are qualified for yoga and even fewer are those who succeed in it. That view, incidentally, should be kept in mind by those who are interested in the discipline at a higher level and are truly attracted to the spiritual horizons that yoga discloses. There seems to be a contrast, however, between the existential situation of single individuals and the metaphysical and general premises of non-dualism. According to non-dualism, monism, as well as to the theory advocated by the Upanishads, the dimension of transcendence and of atma is located within the human being. During the Middle Ages, Albertus Magnus, in reference to the efficacy of the rites employed for the achievement of the Opus Magnus claimed that one has to be predestined to this. Several other authors in the initiatory field have expressed their views in more or less the same terms. In some popular Indian expositions, the same idea has been expressed by saying that the person who can really succeed in yoga must be endowed with privileged qualities which have been acquired through strenuous efforts in previous lives. Since I have already remarked that the doctrine of reincarnation from a metaphysical point of view is totally groundless, we must conclude that these popular expositions merely convey the same idea and emphasize the need for a privileged innate and natural qualification. In this dimension, what really matters are not intellectual fancies or mere wishes, but rather something organic and essential. Agrippa reminds us that man's self-transcendence is the key to all magical practices and is the arcane, necessary, and secret thing required to engage in such practices. Agrippa's view, I believe, is universally valid. Usually, a distinction is made between natural dignity, in which, according to Agrippa, even some elements determined by fate may play a role, and a dignity acquired through one's efforts through a specific lifestyle, and even through some religious practices. The privileged qualification, which I mentioned before, is even postulated in India, and it corresponds to the former. 
The process of an individual's self-transcendence corresponds to the latter. Both are related to what may be called the true meaning of king, kingship, Raja Bhava. In Tantrism, Raja Bhava corresponds to the presence or to the memory or to the awakening of the Shiva principle within oneself. In a commentary to the Samkhya Sutra, Vijnana Bhikshu employed the simile of an exiled prince who, after growing up in a foreign country, all the while unsuspecting of his noble origins, suddenly becomes aware and eventually certain of being a king. The ritual of mandalas, graphic representations of various parts of the universe and of the forces at work in them, ends with the enthronement of their authors, who are given, in the center of these mandalas, a royal insignia. We may recall that the Vajra, or Dorje, which is employed in Tantric Buddhist and Tibetan ceremonies, signifies a scepter, again, a royal symbol. Three qualities are considered by classic yoga as well as by the tantras, shraddha, virya, and vairagya. The latter, in this context, is the attitude of detachment, indifference, or contempt toward anything related to a narrow-minded, conditioned, impulsive, and disorganized lifestyle. By adopting such an attitude, one establishes a certain distance between himself and the world, thus focusing on one's inner majesty. The highest form of vairagya consists in the discrimination between the real and the unreal, the ephemeral, and in the radical shift from one's identification with the unreal to identification with the real. That distinction is inspired by sankhya, reality, immutability, and impassibility are synonyms, as well as the characteristics of the purushic nature, which is sovereign and spectator. Shraddha is faith in the positive sense of the term. It is understood as unshakable certainty, which leaves no room for doubts, wavering, or discouragements. Its counterpart is virya, namely strength in an eminent sense, which is capable of establishing a continuity in one's behavior and actions. The texts say that two factors seriously undermine virya, fear and desire including hope. The term virya may have the specific and technical meaning, especially in Buddhism, of a force that does not belong to the samsaric plane and that empowers a person to go counter-current. As strange as it may seem, virya has been associated with the phallus, this explains why Shaivist ascetics used to wear, as a symbol of their god, a pendant shaped like a phallus or linga. 
The pendant signified virya or virile strength in the higher sense of the word. One of the recurrent misunderstandings in the modern history of religions consists in interpreting phallic cults in a priapic sense, that is, with an exclusive reference to physical procreation. These misunderstandings were incurred even in the case of Egyptian and Greco-Roman cemeteries, in which the phallus was often inscribed to represent the power of a hoped-for resurrection of the dead, and temples in which the phallus was believed to neutralize or to avert dark and demonic influences. Natural and acquired dignity involve a certain degree of inner calm or of natural and regal impassibility. When strength, virya, is combined with impassibility, it may become what somebody described as a, quote, cold magical quality. At a certain level, that quality may be strengthened may even be strengthened by renunciation. The deeper meaning of various precepts, which are usually understood in a more moralistic fashion, here becomes apparent. Logically, renunciation is a factor of virya, of power, and of magical qualities, since it removes and destroys the human condition characterized by desire. The fundamental theory is that every desire or craving found in ordinary people is caused by a state of deprivation. The reason why people crave and become motivated by passion, greed, or desire to obtain something on which they eventually become dependent is that they feel deprived and in need of something. Obviously, one cannot dominate or really possess a thing if, just in virtue of desiring, he becomes dependent on it and passive in the face of the appeal it exercises on him. When one renounces or does not crave or does not seek, the relationship between subject and object is turned around. What ensues is a state of self-sufficiency, wholeness, and independence from things. At that time, it is said, rather than the subject going to the object, it is the object that is attracted to the subject. The object is drawn to the subject as if the latter were its male principle, or better, a stable, impassive, and sovereign principle possessing a magically attractive power. Thus, each renunciation, as long as it is issued from an inner disposition, puts a great power at one's disposal. The occult force that derives from it is called ojas. Renunciation is also needed in order to acquire the power to possess an object or to benefit from something without being bound by it. This is, as we may recall, the tantric notion of enjoyment, bhoga, 
which does not impair one's inner being and which discloses richer perspectives than those advocated by the arid Stoic ethics and by any religious asceticism. Some texts mention certain shaktis, often personified as goddesses, yoginis, or dakinis, that are irresistibly drawn to the merit generated by the renunciation, and that eventually join those who have practiced it. In principle, a shakti does not offer herself to those who yearn for her, but rather comes of her own will to those who embody her spouse Shiva's calm and stable nature. I do not wish to dwell further on this topic since I will discuss later the specific disciplines affecting the will. For now, I simply want to clarify the main aspects of what constitutes a natural and an acquired dignity. This distinction does not lie outside the dimension called initiation, which corresponds to the religious art that Agrippa believed could bestow the dignity required to perform magical operations. The monist premises of Hindu metaphysics have underlined the decadence that has affected every domain of life, especially during the Dark Age, the Kali Yuga. As we all know, in the Christian West, it has been claimed that grace and enlightenment bestowed by God are the conditions required for, for salvation and for an authentically spiritual life since all creatures have been infected and paralyzed by original sin. Initiatory teachings and oriental metaphysics do not share the view of this dualistic mythology. Generally speaking, however, they acknowledge the relative transcendence in regard to the faculties of ordinary men of the power that is really operative at a supernatural level. Hence the notion of initiation, which is considered as the implant of a new principle and of a super-individual influence, which are manifested in the awakening and in a particular and efficient animation of one's being. In this way, we may recognize a special application of the tantric principle according to which, without a shakti, Shiva is inactive and unable to operate. Shiva here may symbolize the human being, and shakti, his female complement, may represent the above-mentioned influence. I have dealt at length with particular cases and with exceptions to the rule. Therefore, we should not exclude that, in specific circumstances, one may be able, through his own efforts, to obtain the same results and to activate an operating principle that does not belong to the samsaric current. On the contrary, early Buddhism has acknowledged the possibility of an autonomous realization exemplified first and foremost by its founder, the historical Buddha, who was the Prince Siddhartha. 
Considering the progressive materialization of humankind in the course of history and the consequent development of physical individuality, later forms of Buddhism, especially in the Mahayana tradition, have reaffirmed the concept of initiation, diksha, as the usual way to achieve one's integration. Initiation, therefore, is defined as a real transmission of a shakti and as a power and a guiding light. While Catholicism professes the apostolic succession and the continuity of grace ensure the, that the apostolic succession and the continuity of grace ensure the sacrament's efficacy, in Hinduism, there have been dynasties of spiritual teachers, gurus, who have uninterruptedly transmitted not only the tradition of their own schools, but also the non-human power, shakti, that is required in order to expound and to activate that tradition. The image that this transmission evokes is that of a flame lighting another. Spiritual organizations called kulas within tantrism also follow the same principle. The power is often transmitted from the teacher to the novice through words of power, mantras, in which a shakti becomes intimately connected to a word thus acquiring a vivifying and fertilizing quality. It propitiates a second birth. The non-dualistic premise is reaffirmed since this is a birth taking place within one's innermost being. Thus it has been suggested that those who embrace a person who is initiated into the supreme Brahman are embracing themselves. And during the ritual, the great saying from the Upanishads is whispered, Thou art that, Tatvamasi. And also, think within thyself that I am he and he is I. Free from all attachments, nirmana, literally, devoid of the sense of mindness and sense of self, go as thou pleasest, as moved thereto by thy nature. When the texts insist on the necessity of seeking the aid of a guru following this beginning, however, they may contain exaggerations. Some contingent circumstances may even play a role. Considering, for instance, that there were no books containing certain teachings and that some books were difficult to find, the guru was practically the only source available, even for the most exoteric elements of the learning process. Whatever may be found in various teachings <clears throat> that cannot be transmitted through ordinary language or written expositions should not be overlooked. The same goes for the coded and multivalent character of some texts, 
which involve a hierarchy of interpretive levels. This set of circumstances, too, dictates the need for a spiritual teacher. Finally, we must consider the continuous relations between a teacher and the person being initiated, besides the transmission of a power which is not just the guru's own shakti, but rather a super-individual shakti, connected to the initiatory circle to which the guru himself belongs. A positive factor in these relations is the assistance provided in the face of dangers and obstacles, which can be foreseen and rightly evaluated only by one who has already had a first-hand experience and who is thus endowed with a high degree of competence. In any event, apart from the beginning, which may be considered to be like the induction of the embryo of a supernatural power and light, spiritual development is the individual's responsibility. After this power has been completely assimilated and actualized, the development must reach a point where the novice becomes utterly independent from the teacher. Figuratively speaking, it is said that at the peak of fulfillment, Siddhi, the disciple, has his own teacher under the feet, and that the kaula is guru unto himself, and nobody is superior to him. No matter in what way it has been achieved, initiation has the general meaning of a consecration. Some texts suggest not only that initiation influences the efficacy of sadhana and of the acquired dignity, but also that if initiation did not occur, sadhana and asceticism might assume an asura character, the term asura designating a demonic, non-divine being, the Indo-Aryan equivalent of the Titans. As far as the technical instruments employed during sadhana are concerned, we may here recall the two main ones, the faculty to visualize precisely, to see through the inner light, and the faculty to focus one's mind through a training similar to that practiced in classical yoga. I'm going to stop here for now. The next chapter or segment of this chapter two is visualization. So that ought to be very interesting. Uh, thank you for joining me for this Antinomian Audiobooks podcast. I hope you enjoyed this reading from The Yoga of Power, Tantra, Shakti, and the Secret Way by Julius Evola. This has been the first uh, subchapter of Chapter 6, Assumptions Behind Practice and the Means Employed. The subchapter, The Experience of the Subtle Body, the Bodily Postures. So he hasn't talked about the bodily postures yet, but... um, 
that will be in a coming podcast. Have a great day. Namaste.